0: Hey, welcome to another edition of the Novel Cognition Podcast. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a retrospective looking at the financial mess of Denver Public Schools. And this is a story uh, that goes back to the fall of 2007, believe it or not, before the financial crash. And uh, I'm sitting here this Friday afternoon with Christopher Scott, Um, who was a major troublemaker and uh, burr underneath the saddle of both the school board and Superintendent Tom Bosberg, who unbelievably is still superintendent in Denver today. Uh, Chris, say hi to the folks. Hi, Garen. Thanks for having me. So uh, Chris and I have a long history with this mess. Uh, For me, it goes back to Uh, Late 2007, when word of an exotic financing deal, exotic by public finance standards, uh, was coming to the fore for Denver Public Schools. Now, this was during the tenure of Michael Bosberg or Michael Bosberg, Michael Bennett, who is now our senior senator from Colorado, hard to imagine that too, Um, But Bennett had come on board at DPS and immediately had recognized some long-standing problems in DPS. One of those had been uh, the DPS pension plan. And at that point in time, DPS was the only school district in the entire state of Colorado that operated its own pension plan. And had been going it alone uh, literally for decades. Um, but they had been kicking the can down the road for probably about 20 years of basically underfunding their pension in order to meet their present day, their current expenditures on educating students and all the other things that the school district did. So uh, Michael Bennett, um, as superintendent, brought in a friend of his. A high school chum, um, a guy with no experience, particularly in finance, um, no particular no experience. Well, Christopher's saying that's not true, but basically, uh, Boesberg had spent a few years at Level Three, um, and he got the job. He was trained as a lawyer. He got the job after being counsel to the chair of the Federal Communications Commission. Um, and that job was really sort of an inside public lawyering job, and he basically went to Level 3 as a an influence peddler. He was trafficking upon the connections he had made uh, at the FCC. And so, of course, Level 3 um, at that time was a spinoff of Kiewit. Um, anyway, Not Kiewit. That's not a construction firm. No, it was a construction firm. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The Genesis of Level 3, and I say this having been a Level 3 stockholder, um, and it endured ups and downs with Level 3. Um, it was a spinoff, and Level 3 was basically a sort of middle-of-the-road, middle-of-the-chain, I should say, um, internet company. They were building um, the sort of – connections between metropolitan areas in that original giant build out of the internet. So they were, uh, basically, a uh, an it, uh, infrastructure company. And that's where, uh, Bosberg was at and Bennett brought him on board at, uh, Denver public schools and, as far as I know, he didn't have any public finance experience. Uh, he may have had...
1: The experience uh, on Wall Street. Yeah, right. with, with Wall Street financing, but not in the public
0: realm. And for those who are not really all that familiar with the difference between public finance, which is basically plain vanilla, basically issuances that look a lot like a home mortgage, they're long-term fixed interest rates, and what they do on Wall Street... Um, where you have all sorts of different maturities of bonds, you have corporate paper, you've got all sorts of weird things with cash. Um, It's a very different uh, financial environment. And particularly as we were in the years just prior to the financial crash, you had all these exotic debt instruments. You had auction rate securities. You had a lot of interest rate swaps, all sorts of things where banks could make a lot of money on transactions. Um, a lot of money on fees to advise companies for doing this. And then in about 2003, uh somebody got the idea to take that very exotic approach to finance and bring it into the public finance sector. And had multiple governmental entities from counties to cities to school districts getting involved in these. Most of them uh, ran a foul of the realities of the financial markets, which is uh, basically when you do one of these exotic finance deals, you're betting against Wall Street. You're betting you'll know better than Wall Street about uh, the direction and magnitude of interest rate moves. And that's just a sucker's bet. And in 2007, when uh, Michael Bennett and his high school buddy from Washington, D.C., um, started trying to figure out how to deal with the long-term issues with Denver Public Schools finance. Um, they started looking at some of these exotic instruments. Um, and I don't think, I mean, Bennett had a background with uh, a sort of a vulture capitalist, uh, for a short period of time with the billionaire Phil Anschutz, but, um, Aside from buying up other people's distressed debt, I don't know that he had any direct experience with these exotic financing instruments either. Uh, but in the fall of 2007, as this stuff started to percolate, I wrote an editorial in the Cherry Creek News um, explaining that it was a bad idea and that only suckers bet against Wall Street, particularly when you're doing public finance. You're talking about financing, um, you know, a school district, and the business of a school district is pretty simple. Every once in a while, they build new buildings, but most of the time, they're basically covering the labor costs of employing a bunch of teachers, support staff, everything from cafeteria workers to bus drivers to paraprofessionals to security guards. It is a human resource-intensive business, and it's not really something that lends itself to the sort of Fancy interest rate swap, collateralized debt option or obligation, CDOs, uh, that sort of thing. It's a really plain vanilla business. Tax dollars come in. That's your tax. That's your top line revenue. Uh, You spend a bunch of money on payroll and you spend a bunch of money on pensions and you take care of some very old capital stock in the form of aging school buildings. And that's about it. So that was my entry point into this. In 2007, I wrote this editorial. Um, I think people roundly ignored it. And then in 2008, they started down this road with some exotic financing. And at the same time, uh, warning flags went flying up. In January of 2008, the auction rate securities market crashed. Auction rate securities were basically debt obligations, bonds, in other words, that kind of went up for auction on a very regular basis, sometimes weekly. And that ends up to be the sort of flavor of the underlying uh, interest or the underlying debt instrument that DPS was looking at. In these auction rate security market, when it crashed, and this is not the public side, this is the private finance side, stranded overnight about, if I'm Recollection is right, about $2.3 trillion in capital was stranded because the market collapsed. You could not find buyers for the auction rate securities that were coming up due for sale every week. It was in this environment the DPS plowed ahead with their financing scheme. And it ended up being, what would you say, Christopher, a disaster? I, I think disaster is a good word um
1: as the school district managed to go from a debt of $350 million um, and take that and turn it into what is now a $1 billion liability. And the way they got there is a, is, is a bit of a complex story, um, and I will try and simplify it, but certainly if you have any... Well, let's stop
0: in just a second. I gave you sort of the origin story for myself. How did you get interested in this subject?
1: Uh, a man um, who had been the uh, acting executive director of the Denver Public Schools retirement system.
0: John McPherson.
1: Uh, yes, sir. Um, contacted a retired, a, teacher. Board, right, a retired teacher. He um, was actually a physical ed teacher and he had been a Marine. And then he had been in charge of DPS's pension system. Um, contacted a board member, Jeannie Kaplan, about his concerns related to the pension system. And Jeannie contacted me based on my background in management consulting and doing data analysis and digging through financials. And so we started there. And when I sat down with John and Jeannie sat down with John, the story was uh, honestly very troubling. Um, The story John told was uh, turned out to be Entirely true, but in many ways worse than we suspected on that initial February morning. Um, and I think really what DPS got caught up in is the same thing that happened in many municipalities and counties around the country. Um, one of which I believe was in Alabama, where uh, a relatively small town ended up with the gold-plated sewer system that they had financed using a number of Wall Street uh, instruments, and more or less had gone broke on them. DPS was in that same model, and the con and the the transaction, I believe, was so complex that there are maybe six people in the world who really understood all of the moving parts, and
0: that may be generous. And so, what were these moving parts? Just in general terms, we don't need to dive too deeply into the weeds, but this was not just a simple piece of paper that says, I owe you X dollars and I will pay it back on the schedule. This was something very different. Well, fundamentally, the piece of paper did say,
1: I'm borrowing from you $750 million. But if you look at it as an adjustable rate mortgage that adjusts every week, Um, That $750 million number becomes very cloudy very quickly. And so... How does it adjust every week? Every week, uh, the school district was required to take their bonds, resulting from the $750 million loan, and sell them in the marketplace. And the Wall Street brokers had guaranteed the, the school district that this would be very easy um, there would never be a problem. Um, they were going to be able to use their interest rate, which was, frankly, remarkably low on on, on the surface. Um, and it would, you know, because of the way the market worked, they would never have to worry about it.
0: And, uh, and of course, at all of these weekly auctions, there's a transaction fee yes. for the bank. Yes, that is true. It's a nice steady chunk of income for bankers
1: yes that's true um in fact some of the folks involved in this transaction um have gone on to serve on the school board hmm, even as this odd even as the school board treasurer mr I, his name is mike johnson he worked um both the finance side of it uh and as well as the uh district um advisor to the transaction And the district had to file several legal uh, papers to allow him to work both sides of the transaction. Um, But so that, that was one of the things that I find troubling about this. Essentially, it was like asking the mechanic to, so is my battery bad? And the mechanic says, well, yes, but let me advise you for an extra $25 and tell you that the battery is bad. And then I'll go and fix the battery. It is it is a model that is head spinning to me, uh, and given my experience in conflict of interest
0: management um, in my consulting career. So this is one of the situations, and I happen to know this guy, Mike, uh, he's at a partner at Kutek Rock, I know him going back to the early 90s, one of the nicest guys you can imagine in what has generally been a pretty plain vanilla industry. Uh, You know, Kutak Rock is a firm, I think it's based in Omaha, but anyway, has a big presence in Denver, um, has done, actually the firm has worked on issuances that I worked on. Um, I think, uh, actually probably sat and was lectured, um, by somebody at the firm. It may have been at Collins and Cockrell, but, um, you know, when you go out to sell public finance stuff, there's a whole bunch of rules about what you're able to say and what you're able to do. And when you go out on uh, one of these roadshows or prepare materials for roadshows, you have to basically say you're going to stay within uh, some fairly bright lines about what you can say about the credit worthiness of the underlying institution, whether it's a, uh, a metro district or a city, or a county, or a school district, whatever the entity is, it's uh, pretty restricted what you can say. And every once in a while, I, I remember there was, back in the 90s, there was a grand jury impaneled to look into the revenue bonds from the Denver airport. I don't think that ever in, resulted in any indictments. It was very uncomfortable for the Webb administration for quite a while. And that was always, I was always told that that was sort of the cautionary tale, do not oversell. Uh, What was going to happen with the revenue side um, and the ability to repay uh, was always to be sort of circumscribed because these were, in many cases, voter-decided revenue streams.
1: And that is one of the things that I think is so important is that in the case of DIA, it was a voter-decided revenue stream.
0: PCOPs are essentially taking a loan out. And a or, PCOP is, stands for what? Because that's one of those terms that you hear a lot. But what the hell is a PCOP?
1: It is a, the acronym escapes me
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: acronym escapes me now. Um,
0: certificate of participation, participation. is the PCOP right.
1: part. It's, it's, it's basically um, a way of identifying a tool of finance that uh, is guaranteed by the pension system. And the presumption is, is that the money you take will go into the, the pension system, and therefore it's guaranteed by the same model, much like taking a mortgage out on your house, and that
0: mortgage is guaranteed by the asset that is your property. Right. And in the case of DPS, <clears throat> these PCOPs were actually uh, mortgages written against the school buildings of the district. So if you go and look today, um, all of the school buildings – with the exception of, I think, a few of these charter properties, um, the vast majority of the high schools, the vast majority of the middle schools, the vast majority of the elementary schools in DPS are not owned by DPS anymore. They're not owned by taxpayers. They're owned by what's essentially kind of a shell corporation. And those shell corporations have issued mortgages or debt instruments of various forms and flavors against the underlying real estate value and that creates a couple issues one is who values what a school is worth uh, to a community it may be priceless uh, kids in denver go to schools like uh, north and east and south these are majestic unbelievable buildings um, in great real estate locations uh, my kids go to denver center uh, for international studies which is a horrifically ugly old middle school building, um, but it has tremendous value because of the institution that DCIS is and great value because it's an unbelievably prime piece of real estate as well. But a lot of these schools, they've taken out loans against where there's just no way on the open market. If you take a steam shovel and knock down the buildings, um, you're not getting anywhere near that kind of money for uh, either replacing the building or building other uses on that property. So, well, if, if I step in here, Garen, let me see if I can bring some
1: clarity to this. Basically, Garen is right. These are shell corporations. In fact, it's one shell right. corporation shell. called the Denver Public Schools Leasing Corporation. And the financing technically was given to the Denver Public Schools Leasing Corporation which is has its own board of directors that is nominally responsible for this organization however the four organization the four board members I've talked to have said really they have no responsibility for it whatsoever and this is how the game plays i take i being denver public schools leasing corporation take a 350 million dollar loan against denver public schools pension system, and I secure that debt with some number of schools, the district then pays me to rent those buildings to the tune of what I would have to pay every month to service the debt. So DPS is writing this check to the to the Shell Corporation, which then turns around and gives it to the bankers. It is a clever way, or it was a clever way, of taking this off DPS's books until the latest uh, accounting standards went into place, wherein now DPS has to show the amount of debt they're covering.
0: And the other thing, of course, about using this financing mechanism, in Colorado we have TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which means every debt issuance must go to the voters for approval. This scheme, this Certificate of Participation scheme, doesn't. It's treated differently, and it has become the way that not just DPS, but all sorts of entities from the smallest municipalities to the largest um, entities in state government uh, basically take public assets, quasi-privatize them so that they can take out more debt without asking the voters for permission first. So when you see that Denver Public Schools has a bond issue, they're going and they're asking for new debt for money that is only well, for mu- for they're taking out a loan and the promise of repayment is the taxpayer approved increase in property taxes. So that A mill levy, then, is the dedicated revenue stream for most of the debt that people know about. So, um, essentially, what voters see is a bond where the payment is based upon a promise that the voters have made and approved, to raise their own taxes, that increase in taxes is a dedicated flow of revenue to pay off those bonds. Completely and utterly different from certificates of participation, which most people don't know about. Um, in fact, I th- there was a point in time where I didn't know about them. I think i learned about uh, certificates of participation back in the mid-90s as a financing tool as I was working on a project up in the mountains. but. People don't know that there's all this debt out there. So what we'll do in probably a coming episode is we'll actually reveal to people just how much debt there actually is in DPS. But let's go to the this kind of dramatic part of the story, which is when this exotic deal that we were talking about that was birthed in 2007-2008 fell apart. What happened? The financial crash of 2008. Of course,
1: suddenly the markets freeze up. Um, There was indication that the liquidity market was freezing up, and liquidity is a fancy term for how much money do I have to move around on a day-to-day basis that I can access. It's basically what cash do I have in my back pocket. That market was showing grave um, indicators related to its future, and yet despite that, DPS enters this transaction. Now, liquidity is a huge issue in this type of transaction because while your bonds have not sold or are floating around in the marketplace, you have to be able to have the money to cover them. And within the type of transaction that this was, you had to have something called a liquidity provider. And that was a bank who gave you money, floated you money, to have in your back pocket for a day or a week or six weeks.
0: And, and this l- bank isn't like a bank here in Colorado. Oh no. The bank, this is a Wall Street bank. Well, it's actually in Belgium. You're right. I Yes. You're so, right. It was in it was an international bank. So imagine <laughs> this. The kids of DPS, they're they're literal financial future is not dictated by somebody in Colorado. Like Compass Bank. <laughs>
1: well, right. <Or laughs> Compass even, Bank has nothing to do with... Or even like...
0: Uh, at this juncture, Wells Fargo right. or really Morgan's. did have a big role in this. Right. We're actually talking about an obscure bank in Belgium, in Brussels, that is the key player in making sure that the school district can stay basically... Operating,
1: And this short-term unsecured debt operates very much like your credit card. It's very high interest on potentially a huge amount of money. Despite the fact that that market was seizing up, DPS enters into the transaction. And then the markets go to hell. And suddenly, DPS finds itself losing hundreds of thousands of dollars by the week, and everyone at the district becomes concerned that this is happening. And I've Bullet heard reports. <laughs> yes, I've heard reports of district management calling uh, various members of the Wall Street community, screaming, "You have to get us out of this! What a disaster!" And at the time, it was the worst nightmare of the district that anyone would know about how this happened and what it happened and what it had cost them. To be honest with you, I'm not sure anyone actually knows what it cost DPS over the course of six to ten weeks while the market ceased, they had no liquidity to, to be had. Um, what they had was at an enormously high, uh, interest rate. Um, and essentially no one would buy the bonds. Roughly two years later, uh, Nick Weiser, a friend of mine who worked in a number of, um, uh, public school initiatives, and I called a, a, um, wall street financier and said we were looking to invest in this sort of instrument and we suggested dps and he said to us oh i would never buy that given what happened to them in 2008 this is two years later 2010 so i have to conclude from that
0: that things were pretty bleak during that period and during this entire time it's it's not as if This is a quiet situation. Uh, There are beginning to be school board members, or a couple, very concerned about it. And we're actively agitating, Christopher and I. And I think eventually, you know, when this situation gets, quote, solved, unquote, because it's still not really solved, uh, but there is an end to this particular episode, um, we're actually... You're yelling and I am being as persuasive as I can at school board members to A, get them to find an independent financial advisor and B, get out of this disastrous deal before the entire district is insolvent. And when when DPS becomes insolvent, it's not just DPS, it's the city and county of Denver that is going to take the hit in terms of its bond or its ability, its bond rating, its ability to issue debt, but also the entire state. Because now at this point, that original pension plan that DPS has had has now been merged into the state's pension plan. It's kind of isolated in a way, but it's still part of the overall, what's called PARA, Public Employee Retirement Association, which people like my mother depend on for- um, And my wife. You're right. (laughs) Right. So, but let me interrupt you for a moment,
1: Gary, because I think this is important. One of the schemes that DPS was running while entering into this transaction was they would find a legal means by which they no longer had to contribute to the, de- the Paris system
0: by not what? You mean they're not paying on the pensions of their employees that they're paying every 2 weeks in fact Amazing. Had, it's actually monthly but yes yeah, yeah, it is monthly um,
1: and essentially that's still happening now but the idea at that time was the money they would be paying into the system would actually allow them to finance this transaction and unfortunately the bill carried by Andrew Romanoff did not pass because Para would not accept the uh, admission of Denver Public Schools pension system into its bailiwick, for lack of a better word. Under
0: the umbrella. Under the umbrella. that That is a better word, Garen. Thank you. And so remember what the context is here. We have a school district that has kicked the can down the road for... Literally about 20 years underfunding its pension. It is on the hook for this itself. It enters into this exotic financing deal, which basically zeroes out everything and attempts to merge with Para. And, that,
1: and that's a critical piece
0: of the idea
1: that they were hoping to merge with Para. They were able to pull up legislation to allow that a year later. The state legislature gave a year for that to happen. So when the 2008 transactions occurred, DPS believed that they would be able to merge themselves with the para system. And no longer pay money into that system, And that discount, if you will, would allow them to pay the costs of servicing the 2008
0: debt, which was $750 million. And at the same time, have some extra cash left over to fund the current or continuing expenses of the district. So. And,
1: and that is absolutely true. I, unfortunately... That first piece of legislation, which was carried through the the legislature and was, in fact, carried by Andrew Romanoff, allowed the para board of directors to make a choice about merging with DPS. And that board of directors said, no, we don't want to do that because we don't believe the numbers that are being presented to us related to the amount of money that might land in our system and our teacher's a pool of money, and or how that funding would move forward. This resulted in one of the most interesting pieces of this story to me. I have had three board members of the Paris system tell me that at one juncture, one of our
0: state legis- legislators, a senator? It, are we talking about Mike Johnson? No, we're talking about Chris Rower. Oh, All right, so this is Chris Romer, who is a state senator representing a good chunk of Denver. Can't remember, is that Senate District 34, maybe? Can't remember.
1: And son of Roy Romer, going to the Para board and informing them that if they did not accept the DPS pension system, Para would basically suffer grave consequences. Thankfully, the Para board at that time said, we don't care, and said, and said, we're not accepting this. And so DPS was hell left holding the bag as the market went to pieces in 2008. They did not have their exemption from payments. They were bleeding money. And there was grave panic over how to pay for this out of their currently existing funds, which were going towards educating children. And I have to admit, I don't know how they solved that problem in terms of taking the money out of one pot and putting it in another. Or as I have known, this called the color of money, which is the color of money is to educate children, and then we're going to change the color of money to pay our debts.
0: And that is essentially... a We get to a point then where there's this crisis, um, and the crisis ends up, at the end of the day, being resolved by the district taking on yet another issuance of debt and fixing out. Fixing out means – it's a a great term, but it basically takes this variable rate debt and turns it into a plain, vanilla –
1: Yes.
0: There's a whole story behind this. Yes, but – you end up with a fixed rate issuance. You end up not having the interest rate swap and not having to rely on this Belgian bank. And as a matter of fact, the, when it comes up, the Belgian bank is no longer interested in doing this kind of business.
1: And I think this is critically important, Garen. Within the transaction, one of the requirements was that the liquidity piece of the, the, of the transaction, that the, the bank offering that could be, had to sign on again two years later. After the crisis of 2008 in 2010, no bank was particularly excited about being a liquidity
0: provider. And by liquidity provider, what we mean is that somebody there that's willing to step in, not really a market maker, but it is a buyer of last resort. So if you're No? No.
1: I, in fact, a liquidity provider is just what I said. A liquidity provider is a provider of short-term capital. And
0: but it that, allows the the district to redeem any bond that fails at auction.
1: Yes. Or carry that
0: bond. Right. To auction in some cases. Right. And so. so right. When, so it's, it's still sort of a market maker. It, it's sort of a buyer of last resort, or it's somebody who insures the, the carrier, the carriage of the bond. Right. Um, the liquidity
1: providers, I understand it never actually could buy the actual bond. But they would pay the day-by-day debt on the unsold bonds. That would allow DPS to take them to market Sounds technically bad. every day, because technically every day DPS had to sell the bonds. Fortunately for DPS, some large uh, investors in community debt uh, bought the bonds, re- bought some of the bonds relatively long-term, which. Help DPS out, but nonetheless, there were still some floating around the market. And the liquidity liquidity provider would have to support the sale of those bonds and keeping DPS with cash in its wallet. Like I began to say, in 2010, there was an absence of liquidity provider. And as one community member with a an experience on Wall Street said to me oh, you can get any service depending on what you're willing to pay. And in 2010, because the superintendent in particular, but the team around him did not want to admit they had made a mistake, they paid an exorbitant fee to the liquidity provider to extend that contract to a bank that was not in Belgium. I believe it was now German. And so the costs begin to rack up. And this becomes an important feature to the eventual refinancing of this to a fixed rate product. Because essentially, when the liquidity provider contract changed, DPS turned out that they refinanced the entire transaction um, in more or less the same way, but giving the banks another $100 million just in the refinancing fee. Associated with the product.
0: So and imagine that we had about four hundred and fifty million dollars. Seven fifty when we started. Three fifty. Three fifty.
1: Oh no, you're right. Four hundred and fifty unfunded liability plus the old PCOPs.
0: Great. So we, we, we're talking about at the beginning of the process, taxpayers in for the Denver Public Schools owe about four hundred and fifty million dollars to the pension to the pension and now we're a couple years down the line and no payment has really been made on the principal we've just moved the whole thing down and we're about to add another hundred million dollars in fees
1: profit and that's a critical point to understand Part of the $750 million was designed to refinance $350 million in old PCOPs. PCOPs typically get structured like a balloon payment on your mortgage. You pay for 10 years, and on years 11 and 12, you pay 10 times the amount you've been paying per year to pay off the debt. So after 8 years of paying paying on $350 million in PCOPs, suddenly DPS was looking at paying 10 times the amount to pay off the $350 million that they owed already. Well, obviously at that time, DPS's budget wasn't such that they could afford the $100 million payments per year. And so they were in a crisis about refinancing those before the note came due. And when you say, Garen, kicking the can down the road... That is, a, that is where, really, the kicking the can down the road happened. And I have to say this. This is important for everyone to understand. The PCOPs and kicking the can down the road is not unusual in municipal government. I believe I said, and I'll change the metaphor a little bit, everyone is happy as long as their kid is getting their his or her education. But when that education stops, people panic and start screaming, And superintendents get fired. so And political
0: legacies get ruined.
1: That's absolutely true. Especially for someone who's hoping to be a senator in 2008, um, in terms of Michael Bennett.
0: Who becomes a senator in
1: 2009. So there's that crisis. And with that in mind, DPS was more than willing to take on any form of refinance to keep from paying $100 million a year to pay off the $350 million they already owed on PCOPS, which, if memory serves, they had taken out in 1998 and 2001. Now, had they been putting money aside, as any good mortgage holder would do, anticipating the balloon payment, They could have paid this, and in 2008, the entire $350 million debt was gone. Instead, they refinanced it at a time when, in my opinion, the professionals at DPS and the finance world and the derivatives world should have known things were going to hell in a handbasket. And on top of that, they added the $450 million in that they had an unfunded liability for the pension. So essentially, when they closed on this deal and wrote a check to the Denver Public Schools pension system, they had a zero liability in pension. And that's critical to remember as we move forward, that in 2000, late 2008, essentially, DPS had no
0: unfunded liability on its pension system. So they essentially caught up for about a generation worth of failing to pay. I, I would say that is, is true. I, you know, I'm not sure what you mean by generation. Well, about, it had been, I think, if my recollection from my discussions with John McPherson and my own research and reporting, I believe that it had been about 20 years since they had actually paid what they owed on a year-to-year basis into the pension, into their own pension. I I believe that is true. But here is another thing that I think is is
1: critical to remember, and I hate to make excuses for our public officials on this, but recall that job one is educating the kids. So it wasn't like DPS wasn't paying into the pension system prior to 2009, they were paying what they
0: could pay and still meet their mission critical activities. Right. And I think this originated, if I'm not mistaken, and I could well be mistaken on this, when the Colorado economy collapsed in 1986, essentially between 1986 and 1988. To give people a rough idea, uh, we lost 60,000 construction jobs in the front range of Colorado. So you can imagine what that meant for the economy as a whole. Uh, We endured a very severe recession in the late 80s, and this was a point in time where DPS began to have some financial difficulties, which we're now still experiencing today, despite all the happy talk that's out there. Um, In a lot of ways, we are paying today for our failures or just the inability uh, to manage uh, public finance, going clear back to that crash in the late 80s. Also important to remember is that in 1992, after several failed attempts, uh, Doug Bruce, a slumlord from Colorado Springs, uh, managed to
1: pass... I I always think that when Doug Bruce hears his name, he longs to be referred to as a
0: slumlord. And having visited multiple uh, of his properties back in my day as a board member of Balance Colorado, uh, back when we didn't have digital cameras and we had to take photos of his properties, I can promise you that he was a slumlord. His properties in Clara Springs, which were all Section 8 rentals, were horrific and I wouldn't wish it residing there upon my worst enemy. But nevertheless, so we have this, this combination of factors. We have a Cyclical decline in the Front Range economy, and then we have Tabor. Tabor basically complicates school finance tremendously. Well, I mean, effectively, it what it does is it prevents local governments from, uh, in combination with the Gallagher Amendment, from funding themselves. On the backside of economic decline, they and, and just that is never catch up. But
1: long. there is one more element of how pension systems operate that added an, an additional layer of complexity to this. During the Clinton administration, and the internet bubble, the stock market exploded. Pensions are funded partially by their investments in various. Opportunities and the pensions holdings resulted in massive profits, which arrested or word. which resulted in underfunding being nearly
0: wiped out. So and much like the national debt at that period, at the end exactly. of the Clinton administration, we were actually running a federal. Surplus. That, that is exactly right. We had the entire the 2000 campaign was the somewhat absurd now <laughs> debate over the lockbox of Al Gore. Um, and he, I believe he invented the internet, which in fact
1: yes, played a horrible, a horrible, uh, role in the the auctioning of these bonds
0: That's in it. its own odd way. <laughs> right. Because if you don't have the collapse, of, if you don't have the internet bubble in the first place, you have a more sanguine? No, I, I'm going to use the word realistic. Approach so, for pension investing, because, pension return. Because this is
1: important. In public finance. When a pension system is evaluated, part of the evaluation is a return on investment from the pension system's doling out money to IBM or the T-bills in the, in the federal government market or whatever. And those investments, investments, but really, if they're forecast of those investments' performance are governed by a bunch of different accounting rules, the cornerstone of which is how well did the investments do the last three to five years? So you've got five years. Of just killing it, Darren. I mean, just killing it. Right. I mean, Idiots man, like me were
0: making a lot of money in the stock market. at
1: Thank God one of us was. But <laughs> neither here nor there, both the DPS pension and the state pension at that juncture looked like all their problems were done. And then the Internet bubble popped. And then we had 9-11. yes. And then we had 9-11, and things became a little better, or became better after that. I shouldn't say a little better. But then we had the start of the housing market collapse in 2005 or six, which then led to the overarching stock market crash of 2008. And during that period, between the internet bubble and all the other shenanigans our country went through, or particularly our financial markets... The forecast of return on investment fell through the floor, and suddenly the ability to make up the unfunded liabilities in our pension systems also fell through the floor. DPS's pension system suffered the same problem, and so 1998 happened, and we issued some, some of the peak ops. 2008. 2008. No, it was actually 1998. Was the first first, first round? That's what we refinanced in two thousand eight.
0: So that's the beginning of the kicking the can down the road using this vehicle. But, so up but, until that point, because they did they zero out the unfunded. So in ninety eight they they zeroed I, out. I believe the that is terribly. true. So kicking the can down
1: the road is very complex because on the surface level it looks like. We I, paid off the pension liability, right? And we're great. And All, we're great. All's good. But unfortunately, what that actually means is that I've taken on a greater debt to my household, in this case the district, in order to pay that off. Think of it as like a second second mortgage, guarantee. You take a second mortgage, you pay off your short-term credit card short-term debt. Credit card debt. But you then have this 30-year obligation
0: to pay back, and which you is... Have no more underlying income.
1: Exactly. You have no more underlying income. But because the debt is now spread across, across 30 years and at a, a fixed rate, it hurts a lot less. It improves your ability to Buy fund various things tonight. by dinner. Right. Because you've suddenly got more cash in your pocket. Now, what you're paying on the interest rate versus what you would have paid... Um, in the case of a home uh, second mortgage, you know, is much lower. In the case of PCOPs, it theoretically is about the same, but it's spread out more. But in 2008, it became like financing a car on your credit card. Because the real interest rate, if you calculated that in 2008 and 2009,
0: was roughly 15%. Right. And in fact, it's when the bonds fail at auction... Essentially, your interest rate for that issuance is infinite.
1: <laughs> yes, but but thankfully to, for Denver taxpayers, that infinite rate didn't last a whole lot, a whole
0: long time. It was really six weeks. Um, but when you think about it, if it costs you a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred million dollars later in fees to fix that screw up, essentially. Your interest rate asymptotically nearly approached infinity for this six weeks. And,
1: and that is true. That is true. And what Garen says about uh, the fees down the road, the costs of refinance in particular, is what one of the things that got DPS in real trouble um, as they went from a $750,000 debt to a billion dollar debt. And fundamentally, it's that cost of let's say, moving money from one credit card to the other that gives you a reasonable rate for six months and then suddenly starts charging you 28%. And the charges related to their liquidity providers was head-spinning by the end of the contract, as well as the refinance fees that seemed to be happening every two years that, to their credit, the board eventually
0: sorted out and said, enough is enough. They were direct kicking and screaming. And I think yes. and Mary Sewell, who yep. actually was once your opponent in a school board, race. That's that true. That is that is another story. Had um, enough sense well to basically along with, force the administration to its knees. And blah blah blah. And Roe, yeah and Roe, Anne
1: Rowe had some experience on Wall Street and she, along with Mary, said this is definitely too risky. Uh, for the school, for the school district, um, amazingly to me, is that several school board members fought tooth and nail to stay in the transaction. Um, Teresa Pena leaps to mind, and I believe she now works for the district. Um, and within this, I have to say,
0: much which, to the which brings to mind why we should have an intelligence test for prospective school board <laughs> members, but. Neither
1: here nor there. I think this is critical to understand that over the course between 2009, at least when I became involved, and when the school board decided to refinance this debt into a fixed-rate product, it was somewhat amazing to me the number of people who willingly got involved in this. And I think this is critically important to how the debt ended up being refinanced. Essentially, Gretchen Morgenson, then of the New York Times, now of the Wall Street Journal, took a great interest in this and, in fact, published a piece about it um, in 2010. 10, August 6th
0: or 7th? I, I think August it's something
1: like that. that. It was right about the time that Bennett was running against Romanov, and the primary was six hours away. And I, pro- I published a couple of fairly incendiary pieces myself. Yes. And the time. I, I, you know, so unusual for you, Garen, to publish incendiary pieces. But anyhow, we also had Joseph Fuchera who was at that time on faculty at Princeton University's School of Business, who was advising a couple, three school board members on this and feeding me information as well. And then, more importantly, in the larger scope of this, a man of, named Tim Schaefer was giving the board members also information and me information, but Tim Schaefer was eventually hired by the board to serve as
0: its advisor on the transaction. Now,
1: just so, to put Tim Schaefer in, in perspective. perspective let,
0: me, let me explain something, what, what what you just said. So we have a school district with a, quote, professional, unquote, finance staff. Mm-hmm. And they pay law firms and financial advisors and Absolute banks. Term to tell them what to do to protect the resources of the district. But in this case, the school board itself ends up hiring an independent financial advisor.
1: And I think what's important to remember here, and this is something that I think the public overall needs to understand about virtually all their city level, municipal level representatives, is these are common folks. They, I mean, Wall Street transactions, how to build buildings, all of those things, they generally know nothing about that, unless you're Mike Johnson and happen to be a Wall Street financier who becomes treasurer of the Denver Public Schools Board a- after 2011. It was 2012, right?
0: I think so. Well, he would it would have been, he just lost. So yes. that was, let's actually be accurate. So he lost in 2017. His first term would have began four years previous in 2013. And I, and I think that's that, that's probably
1: right. It, it, anyways, it's anyway. neither largely have have, in, in material. But, but at the time here. when these were entered into, school board members have reported to me, and I have seen the PowerPoint presentations talking about this transaction at the school board, of course had to approve, these PowerPoint transactions were nothing but sunshine and laughter. And all the school board members said, well, Mr. Bennett has experience in complex financing, and Mr. Bosbert has come to us out of Level 3, where he did a number of complexing. Yes, well, a number of complex financing transactions and partnerships and this, that, and the other thing. And even then, at that time, a man named David Supas had been hired from Level 3, also with a strong business background, as it would appear on paper. And all of these guys said, this is a great opportunity. And the school board, at that time, having the track record they have of these big names suddenly in front of them, said, well, they would know. Why do I need to worry about it? Vote yes. And that's how that happened. I can't say that it was, that the school board was utterly duped because I believe elected officials have a responsibility to actually look at what's in front of them and seek counsel outside of what their management is giving them so that they not be, don't become just a tool of the CEO or in this case, the district superintendent. But that didn't happen. And I think that that is true for a lot of our elected officials where that didn't happen. And so the And this DPS, was a
0: common tale across the country. So, yes. Yes, it, it, so this is not a through the looking glass episode that was peculiar to Denver public schools, it just happened to be visited upon Denver public schools and right. where my kids go, where your kids go. Right. So, so and I think we're particularly sec- pissed off but, about it still but, eight years yes, later. Yes,
1: but I think it's important, you know, like the the town in Mississippi, the same thing happened. Yeah, the entire Alabama, yeah. well, Alabama, Mississippi, bad. but I have to say Alabama at least a Democratic uh, representative. Um, but essentially, that group of city council members were sold the same
0: ball of wax. Same probably exact PowerPoint.
1: More or less. I think that, that's probably true. And looking figures. at the PowerPoint, I think it was probably 80% prepared by the Wall Street bankers to make it look like there was no worry about this. And, of course, in their interest, there was should be no worry because they were going to make money hand over fist.
0: So we are at the one-hour mark. We're going to call it quits on this episode, and we are going to revisit this topic in a second forthcoming episode where we look at today. We're going to look at it's now been 10 years since the financial crisis and the beginning of this weird story. When they there. Uh, Christopher's trying to tell me that we should just fill in the gap. Maybe we'll do that. But right now we've got another uh, crisis in DPS. And if you listen to or read the PowerPoints, again, from the district, they're talking about enrollment and someplace in another document, they talk about uh Potential increase in para costs, but really, what we found looking through um, the most recent certified annual audited,
1: financial report,
0: yes, the the what the accountants, the outside guys looking at their books say, is we're spending about one in five uh, of dollars, dollars roughly, um, or overarchingly at, in the in the. Right. So, and another way to look at it is... But so more on that later. Right. More on that later. But we're spending a lot of money on... My bourbon has almost run out. We're looking at cutting teachers, and we're spending a tremendous amount of money on debt service and not as much on instruction. So, with that being said, we'll return and revisit the current state and maybe how the we got from that 2011-2012 time frame to 2018 um, in a forthcoming episode. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you haven't been put to sleep by this, but this has been one of the most um, interesting pieces of public policy, public finance. Public um, failure. Public failure. Systemic failure, really, of our public institutions Um, In the last 30 years, I'd say. So again, thanks for listening to Novel Cognition. Thanks to Christopher Scott for spending his time and sharing his tremendously uh, hard-won, deep understanding of this stuff and his expertise. So thanks.